Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Afternoon, everyone. And welcome back to The Great Room. Isn't it fantastic to be back in here? It really is. The last event we had in here was um, Christiana Figueres, the Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So the big issues, the big personalities, and fantastic to see you all again, and also the audience online, uh, of course. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Michel Barnier to the RSA today. Wow, you're very popular. <laughs> a chief negotiator for the EU. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> a chief negotiator for the EU, Michel Barnier was at the very heart of one of the most complex sets of talks in modern political history over four turbulent and often exasperating years. And the talks are captured um, in vivid insider detail in his book, My Secret Brexit Diary, uh, which is published in English this week. Uh, we're delighted to have Michel with us today to share his perspective on the lessons learned on both sides of the Brexit negotiating table and to hopefully uh, look forward to a new chapter in EU-UK relations and some of the most pressing global challenges uh, ahead. Now, after his opening address, I'll have a short follow-up conversation um, with Michel Barnier, um, after which we'll have some time for some audience questions. We'll be taking questions um, in the room and from online viewers in this new hybrid uh, way of doing events. So if you're watching a live stream, um, you can post your question in the YouTube chat bar or on Twitter using the hashtag RSA Barnier, and we'll try and get as many as possible before we finish promptly uh, at two o'clock. So we've got a fascinating um, hour in store ahead, so let's get started, and please join me again in welcoming Michel Barnier. Good afternoon to all of you, and um, many thanks, uh, dear Anthony, for your warm welcome. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here with you at the Royal Society of Arts and to meet all of you, both uh, physically and uh, also virtually. Uh, not only because uh, it's good to be back in London for me, uh, for my wife also, she will join, I hope. She's unpredictable. Huh? So. <laughs> uh, but also uh, uh, to be back in London without having to negotiate with the British government. <laughs> Four years and a half. Huh? <laughs> but also because um, I share many of your values, open debate, inclusiveness, innovative thinking, social justice, building uh, sustainable communities. So I'm very happy, frankly speaking, to have this opportunity to engage with you, Anthony, and with your audience about my experience, long experience, negotiating with the UK, which I tried to tell in this book, published uh, on Friday in English, uh, and also to speak about the future relationship uh, between EU, UK, France, UK, if you wish. Uh, I will try to keep my uh, remark, my opening remark short. Uh, let me just say that uh, in the last few months, I tried to give a meaning to my Brexit uh, years. And let me already reassure you, the meaning of Brexit is still not crystal clear for me. I hope it is clearer for British citizens. <laughs> but I still see clearly the meaning of our position in these negotiations, the European positions. As I often say, these positions were guided by five principles that I always had in mind since I was appointed chief negotiator in 2016. And the first principle is respect. Uh, the respect for me towards the UK is not new, not recent. Uh, over the last five years, I often say 
who told the story of my very, very first vote a long time ago as a French citizen, 21. At that time, we voted in France at 21, not 18. It was in uh, seven, 1972. And there, were, there was a referendum in France about the accession of the UK to the European communities, but also along with uh, Ireland, Denmark, and Norway. It I was at that time a member of the Gaullist party, I still am, uh, and campaigned for the yes, for the accession of UK, despite the previous position of the General de Gaulle against the accession. Because I thought that we should be stronger together, but also because I had always admired the UK, its history, its culture, some of its political leaders, in particular Winston Churchill, its capacity to debate openly and to find innovative solutions, as you do here in uh, the RSE. And to be frank, I never regretted this vote, never. In its uh, 47 years of membership, the UK played a key role in developing the EU project and its single market, a key role. And the UK also strongly benefited from being a member of the EU, I think so. So when 52% uh, of voters in the UK chose to leave the EU, I regretted this decision, but I always respected it. And since I, since I was appointed as the EU chief negotiator, I have also treated the UK with respect, without aggressiveness, and without any spirit of revenge. This is the first principle. The second one is unity. We would not have succeeded either without standing united in the EU. And unity is the second principle. I had the privilege of working with a truly exceptional team, 70 people, half men, half women, 22 nationalities in my team, with the full trust of the European Commission, the Council, what we call the Council in Europe is the Council of the Minister, 27 members now, and the European Parliament. But unity does not fall from even in particular in difficult negotiations such as these. So we have to build this trust. And to do so, we worked hand in hand, week after week, with the European Parliament and with the 27 member states, the head of states and the national parliaments. We ensured an exceptionally high level of transparency, unusual in Brussels, in this negotiation. We clearly explain our position to all those affected, citizens, businesses, trade unions, public administration, but also academics, think tanks, NGOs and journalists. And we encouraged a genuine public debate on Brexit on the continent, on how it will affect the EU and the UK, and in particular Ireland and Northern Ireland, given the specific challenges created by Brexit. And I think that this method of transparency and debate was the right one, because it left no stone unturned. Individual problems were identified, analyzed, and discussed. The border of the island of Ireland, the UK sovereign bases in Cyprus, fishery, transport, Gibraltar. Ladies and gentlemen, each and every serious concern of one EU country, among seven, has to become the concern of the 26 others. Simply because we needed unanimity at the end of the process to conclude this agreement. So, the leverage of unity was the unanimity. The leverage of unity was the obligation to be unanimous, a point which was often underestimated by the British government. With trust comes great responsibility, and this is my third principle. 
our first responsibility was to negotiate an orderly UK withdrawal, if I may say an orderly divorce, to avoid the most negative consequences of Brexit. The withdrawal agreement removes three major uncertainties. First, it safeguards for life the rights of all EU citizens living in the UK and all UK nationals living in the EU before and of 2020. That means for more than 6 million people, the protection of their rights, social and residence rights. Second, the withdrawal agreement settles all financial obligations undertaken while the UK was a member of the Union. What has been decided at 28 has been or will be paid at 28. And finally, the third withdrawal agreement agreed includes a solution to deal with the very specific situation of Northern Ireland, where the Brexit negotiation uh, were not just about cross-border trade and economy. My personal conviction, knowing quite well and loving uh, Ireland and the people of Ireland, is that uh, what is at stake in Ireland is not only about uh, trade, goods, technical problems, but about peace for the people. So, more existentially, about maintaining peace and stability, given the Brexit would have created a border on the island of Ireland. Finding common ground with the UK on how to achieve a solution to this problem was, as you know, not very easy. And finally, we reached an agreement with uh, Mr. Johnson, not without him, not against him, but with him, with his team and with uh, his cabinet. And this deal has been approved and ratified by the House of Commons a few days after. It is a balanced and delicate compromise. Of course, I hear those voices who still oppose the protocol. I know that the Commission today in Brussels is seeking solutions that work for all. I am sure such solution will be found if all parties engage constructively. And it is my hope for the next week, few days and few weeks, because one against uh, respecting our signature on both sides, implementing in a clever way this protocol is the best way. The protocol on Ireland is not the problem. It is a solution to the problem created by the Brexit. Ladies and gentlemen, the withdrawal agreement settle all aspects of the UK's divorce from the EU but we still had to agree on our future relation. For this, we needed ambition, which is my fourth key word. Our trade and cooperation agreement, negotiating the second step last year from February until the day of Christmas. Uh, this trade cooperation agreement covers a very broad range of topics from energy to climate change fishery, nuclear safety, uh, for our citizen security also. Even on trade, our zero tariff, zero quotas agreement on all goods is unprecedented. At the heart of this free trade agreement are a set of new rules aimed at ensuring a more modern, fairer, more sustainable trade policy. A trade policy that does not only aim to offer more choice at lower prices, but that seeks a fair treatment of workers and decent working conditions, that respect the safety and health of consumers, and that protects our environment and climate in the long term. This is what we call the level playing field, which is for the first time a key piece of a trade agreement for the EU not for the last time, but for the first time. And I think that level playing field was particularly necessary with such a closer neighbor whose economy is so interconnected with ours. But obviously, this free trade agreement has, be, has been built on reality, which is the reality of the Brexit, which is the end of the freedom of movement decided by the UK. 
Of course, this deal could have been even broader. In particular, I regret that the UK government chose not to participate to the Erasmus Student Exchange Programme. It is a choice of the UK. And that it did not accept to include clauses on citizens' mobility and non-discrimination between all our EU nationals. All EU nationals are equals for the EU, no longer for the UK. And finally, I regret uh, that uh, in that uh, uncertain and unstable world around us, the UK did not wish to negotiate an agreement on foreign policy, external security, defense and development cooperation in Africa. But the door remained open. But overall, reaching such an ambitious and realistic agreement in such a little time, nine months, is and was, in my view, a great achievement. And finally, uh, even with an ambitious scope, an agreement does not replicate the benefits of the EU and of the single market. And this brings me to my fifth and last key word, Europe. Throughout the negotiation process, we protected the EU and its single market, simply because the single market um, is our main asset. And we have built the single market along this road during 47 years with the UK and the huge and high level influence of the UK uh, in the project of the single market. Uh, and it worked. Uh, contrary to what many predicted at the time of the UK government, we have defended and protected the single market and its integrity. Brexit did not trigger the end of the EU, despite the hopes of Mr. Farage. If you look at my book, you will see uh, uh, the compte rendu of my very uh, stimulating meeting with Mr. Farage. Huh? <laughs> he asked me a rendezvous, no problem, we have this rendezvous. 45 minutes in my office and uh, at the end I asked him, uh, Mr. Farage, uh, okay, you, you won the Brexit, uh, it was your choice, I no, no problem with that, we, we are going to deliver the Brexit uh, in the next few months. Uh, can I ask you, uh, how do you see the, the future relation between UK and EU? Uh, and his answer was very immediate and, and spontaneous. Mr. Barnier, after the Brexit, the EU will no longer exist. No way, huh? Uh, so, um, despite these hopes, uh, the Brexit did not trigger the end of the EU, but rather, to be frank, it's a reawakening, uh, a realization that our unity, our single market, our common policies are what give us scale and clout on the global stage. And I remain, as you know, I'm engaged in politics for a long time as a Gaullist and European, European in addition to be a patriot. And I think for this reason that uh, in the global world, instable, fragile, dangerous, where we are around us, it's better to be together than alone. Uh, and in this terrible COVID crisis, which is not finished, the EU has acted with determination, for instance, for by pooling or mutualizing the purchase of vaccines, or by launching a massive, massive common recovery and resilience plan. Uh, but um, having this act, I don't want to be complacent. I think we need to learn the lesson of the Brexit. The Brexit is, I may say, here in London, not a, a small event. It's a very historical and serious event. And uh, the first chapter of my book is, uh, as a title very clear, a warning. It's too late for you, in the short term. Huh? Uh, but it's not too late for the other European countries. And as a French politician, I just say we must listen. We must understand why 52% of the British people vote against Brussels, even even if all the answer to the social anger, 
the popular sentiment expressed by the Brexit are not in Brussels. Some are in London or in Paris or in Rome. Some are at the regional level, but a part of this answer has to be founded in Brussels. This is what I call the lessons of the Brexit, and it is the first chapter of this book before the, the diary of the negotiation. Some uh, of these reasons for the Brexit are probably very specific to the UK, but others are common to many other regions across Europe. The feeling that Europe does not listen enough or is too distant, that it does not protect the citizens or act decisively enough against the negative consequences of globalization or the pandemic we are in, that is, it has led some of its industry collapse and done little to create new decent jobs, that austerity went too far in the last decade. We have to listen to understand and to answer. Everywhere in Europe, we should listen to the popular feeling, which is not the same as populism. Everywhere, we need to show that Europe works for its citizens. Ladies and gentlemen, as the uh, European continues its journey, and despite the difficulty linked to Northern Ireland, fishery, or the recent Australian submarines contract crisis, my hope is that nobody will lose sight of our long-term common interest. Simply because when you look at the challenges of the world, from climate change to Afghanistan, the poverty in Africa, the migrations, the risk of a new financial crisis, my conviction is that the UK and the EU have many, many reasons to cooperate. And to be frank, all along this negotiation, I, keep, I kept in my mind three main concerns, permanently, every day and night. Number one, to defend, it was my mandate, the EU interests, without aggressivity and without spirit of revenge, with respect, number one. Number two, the peace in Ireland. Number three, uh, the good spirit for the future. But we need to be two to cooperate. We need to be two. It's the reason why it's so important that the UK, the UK government, the current UK government, respect its signature to this treaty. It is the base and the precondition for trust and confidence and for this cooperation. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for that um, important account of what certainly for this country is a very important set of negotiations. Um, the, the diaries are very uh, rich um, and reading between the lines, a range of emotions come through. There was a, there was a sort of strong sense of, of disappointment in 2016 at the outcome, at surprise at the lack of British preparedness which turns to sort of fatigue and exasperation, um, and then relief, and finally sadness, I think, is the, the final note that, that, that you strike. You had a very clear mission, which was to negotiate the withdrawal agreement and the future trade agreement. But what was your internal mission throughout all this? Was there ever a sense inside yourself that you wanted a negotiation to sort of bring the British to their senses and encourage a rethink on Brexit before it was too late? or were you zoned in on the end goal of the negotiations themselves? Um, I'm not sure to, to have clearly understood your question, but uh, um, uh, we have negotiated this treaty with the, the UK government only. I obviously listen to everybody, the think tanks, uh, what you said, um, all the parties, the Labour, the Lib Dem, uh, the Conservative Party, I met uh, everybody, uh, the First Minister of Scotland, the First Minister of Wales, uh, the leaders uh, 
Northern Ireland parties, even the DUP, it was very stimulating to meet uh, <laughs> uh, the leaders of the DUP. I, I listen to everybody to understand, but my, my view is due to the majority, even if the majority is diverse, the Conservative Party, uh, we knew on the European side that the Brexit was on the road. Huh? Yeah. And, uh, um, Obviously, I listened many people speaking about the second referendum and, and to change the, the road, but uh, uh, negotiating with the UK government, first Mrs. May and after Mr. Johnson, uh, we, we, we were on the road to deliver the Brexit. Huh? After, the, the point was, uh, what is the level of the Brexit? You know, I don't know if you remember my famous stairs. Huh? Mm. I, I, I we put on the in the debate a uh, slide describing the stair with a different level of cooperation between EU and third country. Uh, the first step is uh, the step of the EU, and that means that the best relation with the EU remain and will remain to be member of the EU. Huh? The second best is the what we call the Norwegian step, being outside of the EU, but inside the single market, with the choice of Norway. After uh, Switzerland, uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, Turkey, and finally, last step is uh, the free trade agreement. And the UK could have to choose one of these steps. Every option was open, huh, to be frank. Even the, the, the second best, which is a which was, which could be, to, to, to be outside of the EU, but inside, member of the single market. But finally, uh, uh, I'd write about the, the speech of Mrs. May, uh, Lancaster House, and, uh, and many other speeches. She, she, she has chosen, because of her majority, and Mr. Mr. Johnson after, to, to, to go out everything, and to, to leave everything, the union, the single market, and the custom union. It was not an obligation, it was the UK choice to leave everything. So uh, the, 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 the last and the only option was the, the free trade agreement, Canada or uh, uh, Japan. Uh, more or less tariffs, we have chosen to have no tariff, no, no quota, but uh, lots of consequences. This triple choice to leave the single market, the custom union, and the Union have many, many consequences. The UK have left, left 600, in the 600 in international agreements, 600 trade agreements and so on. And to all the, more or less all the policy of the EU. So this is, this is the reason why the negotiation was so complex. This is the reason why I needed a sort of professional team around me uh, to go into the complexity. But uh, the, the, my, my, my speeches all along this road, my first press conference, the last one, was to say, don't underestimate the consequences of the Brexit. Huh? Yeah. Uh, in particular, if I look at what happened in London today, uh, which is uh, li partly linked to the Brexit, the fact that we, you, you have decided to, you have, not, not you, but uh, 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 your government has decided to leave the, the, to end the, the, the freedom of movement, including for the, the truck drivers, huh? uh, and you have decided to leave the single market. That means mechanically to rebuild controls for each, each and every good entering in UK or export by UK. Each and every good now is controlled, which was not the case before, which is not the case in the EU. We control the goods only, only at the external borders. So, in the book, I mean, you start off with a warning and you end your, with... Your, your seat is too comfortable. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I prefer Enjoy. a chair. <laughs> you can relax on them afterwards, that's fine. Um, but the, you, you start with a, with a big warning for the EU and the need for it to yes. be relevant, but you end with three further warnings in the book. One is about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, one is about um, the UK diverging um, from, from, from the agreement. And the three is uh, reiterated 
demand for the EU to learn the lessons from, from Brexit. I just want to look at those three warnings um, uh, one by one. So the first one is the Northern Ireland Protocol, and you described it in, in your opening remarks as uh, a delicate balance, um, which it is. And you know, in, in the context of the, uh, the petrol crisis that, that we're facing, it's quite clear that unionist politicians are now starting to ramp up the rhetoric again around the Northern Ireland Protocol. Do you fear that um, it would become ever more controversial over the coming months and years and will actually potentially reach a fever pitch where suddenly there is a choice to be made between a Northern Ireland Protocol and a Good Friday Agreement? Um, this point is the most serious, the most sensitive in all these negotiations. Yeah. Because once again, it's not about uh, trade or goods, but about peace and the people. Yeah. And I recall in my book this meeting, very moving meeting in Dungannon, uh, south of Derry, London Derry, where, yeah. where I met three years ago a group of women. And it was very moving because it's without any press, we were, it was a private meeting. Uh, these women asked me with great emotion, Mr. Banyer, please do everything you can to avoid that this uh, conflict begin again. Huh? Mm. Uh, 4,000 dead. Huh? Yeah. Uh, so, um, my feeling that day in Dunganen that is simply that these women give, give, give me a, a mandate, if I may say, give me a mandate to, to find a solution. And uh, I, I never want to in interfere in the institutional debate in Ireland nor in, uh, in Scotland, uh, never. Uh, I never want to interfere in the national debate. Huh? I just try with my team, frankly speaking, to find operational and concrete solutions to the problem created by the Brexit. What, what, is, what created the problem in, in Northern Ireland is the Brexit, nothing else. Why? Because uh, we have on the same island now two countries. One is a member of the single market, the other is outside. So we need, as I told you a few minutes ago, at each and every external border to control. If there is no border in Ireland, because we cannot rebuild our border, if we want, want to maintain the, the peace, we need to control somewhere. And uh, let me just give you one example. I've been the French Minister of Agriculture, so I can be speak about uh, the cows and a long time, if you want. But a cow entering in Belfast, coming from England, the same country, your country, this cow is entering in France when it is in Belfast. Immediately, mechanically, this cow, this animal, is entering in France or in Germany or in Belgium, because this cow is in the single market if there is no border. So we have to control. And we have to control with calm, uh, technically. I, I never spoke about a border in Belfast or in the sea. I spoke about checks and control. And uh, to be frank also, a part of this control have existed before the Brexit. Before. So we just speak about control and check for another reason that the, the, the island of Ireland is a single epidemiologic zone. And so we have to, to, be, to be careful about the human and, and uh, animal pandemic also. So we have to control somewhere and what we have done in this uh, agreement with Mr. Johnson not against him, not without him, with Mr. Johnson personally and his team, the same team, Frost and the others, the same team. They know every detail, every sentence, every word of this agreement. There is no surprise. What we have decided is to, to, to create a double movement uh, of confidence. Uh, the UK have accepted to respect in Northern Ireland the EU standards, the EU laws in particular for for, for customs, and we have decided to trust the UK government, the UK authorities, to 
to implement itself in our name, the control. So I simply hope that this uh, uh, agreement with its fragile, complex, workable, will be implemented without drama. I, I hope, I, I request a kind of de-dramatization of this control. It is the only way to work. And I simply hope that um, in that case, in, in, that, in that situation, the UK government will respect his signature. Great, thank you. Um, you, you then sort of in, in, in this, this final, very interesting essay, um, raised a prospect of the UK, I think you described it as climbing back into the window of the single, the single market. And I guess my question is, you know, should the UK, I don't know, when we're bored it's of... Not, it is not the only point where the UK loses time yeah, in the negotiation. Huh? Yeah. They lose their time by uh, this temptation to get uh, the, the best of two worlds. Huh? Uh, uh, they lose their time by trying to bypass my team yes. and to engage directly with member states against me. Uh, uh, it was a loss of time. Huh? Well, none of it, none of it worked. So, um, but if the UK wasn't to try and climb in through the window, but wanted to come in, if we're bored of the petrol shortages and we want to go back through the front door again, how open do you think that front door will be? Would it be a sort of de Gaulle non, or would it be a delay? Or uh, would please, please, don't speak too fast. Yeah, because, uh, um, if the UK it's wanted, a, it's a free English lesson for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, if the UK wanted to rejoin the single market and oh. or the customs union, it, it, would the it door... It's your question. It's this, a yeah. new question. Huh? Yeah. With, yeah. With, will the but door The door be is open. Across Europe? The door is open. I can't tell more. Huh? The, the door is open. And if it were a Scotland that had just voted yes no, no. in an independence no, you, referendum? You, you, your question was precise. You spoke about the UK. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I've got a feeling we're not going to discuss no, the Scotland question. I listen, <laughs> I listen to you. I don't want to interfere in the British debate. Please, uh, uh, you don't need a French politician to tell you uh, or to tell to the Scottish people what to do. Huh? Please, uh, I, I want to keep my place. Uh, I respect the British debate, but if once in the future, I don't know when, uh, uh, the UK decided democratically to, to ask to to join the custom union, for instance, it's possible. To rejoin the single market, it's possible. Even to rejoin the EU, huh? but, but it is your choice. And then the, th the third warning is, about, is to the EU itself. And you describe a sort of bureaucratic distance, almost arrogance at times, within the EU. True. Um, if, you look, if, you look, if you look carefully, you can find bureaucracy uh, in Brussels, but also uh, elsewhere. Huh? Yeah. But Perhaps in London too, or in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what's what's becoming clear is that the, the EU project is is rolling on, and, and you referenced it in your opening remarks yourself. I mean, the vaccines project, sure. the collectivisation of debt to support the economic recovery, um, the current um, European uh, Commission president mentioned the possibility of a standing army. You know, is there a fear that actually the dislocation between the EU and its citizens? May is at risk of becoming even worse than it current, than currently is the case. No, because uh, uh, no, I the contrary. If uh, in Brussels, number one, the, uh, the bureaucracy, which is very competent and sometimes sometimes arrogant, competent and arrogant, uh, stay at its place. Uh, if the politician and the commissioner are politicians. Uh, the minister are politicians, the member of the parliament are politicians. If the politicians play their role, yeah. play their role, uh, yeah. uh, number one, if um, the policy changed, are they are going to change uh, for, for the last few years, more concrete, uh, less naivety, uh, a new industrial ambition to create jobs, new jobs, um, uh, Bet, uh, better control of the, con the, the external borders. Uh, uh, if we are going on this line, I think, uh, on the contrary, that the, the people in each of our country will see uh, what I can call the added value to be together. Yeah. Uh, the added value. Yeah. 
The point is to prove to the citizen that there is an added value to be together. I'm not a federalist. I never be. I'm a Gaullist. I, I, but I'm European because I think that uh, to face a certain number of challenges, I quote a certain number of the challenges, and there is many others, we need to be together. If we are not together, we will be um, uh, under the, the, the influence of the China, of the United States, and I, I, I did not engage in politics to be a subcontractant of the of the U.S. or the China. Uh, so, so uh, my 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 line is to build what I can call a solidarity between our national solidarity sovereignty. Yeah. I am in favor. Uh, as you know, I run for to be the French president. I think the, the, the best goal for president or prime minister is to defend. The, the national sovereignty. But I think in certain situations, in certain cases, we need to pull or to uh, make our national sovereignty solidaire, soli in solidarity. Yeah. This is the point. Yeah, absolutely. And th the final question for me before I open it to the, to the audience. I mean, there are many lessons from Brexit. Um, one of the major lessons is the fact that mainstream politicians have to be very careful with how they uh, engage with some of the most sensitive issues and some of the issues raised by, for example, far-right populism because it can get a sort of momentum of its own, as it did do in the case of Brexit in some respects. How do mainstream politicians resist the temptation to engage with some of those agendas to accelerate them? Very strong anti-immigration agenda or very strong anti-EU agenda, no. whatever it may be. The problem is not to, to follow or to listen to extreme right or extreme left also. The problem is to tackle the problem which are the, the real problem of the people. And when one, uh, one policy does not work, which is the case in France for the mi migration policy, uh, uh, it is lose-lose. Uh, we, we are not able to welcome in a, with dignity and with humanity the, the people who are welcoming. Uh, and uh, there is so many people who are not the right to stay, so this politics does not work. We have to change it. The same at the European level, which is one of my proposals. Just precisely to avoid to be obliged to put in place the solution of the extreme right. Huh? Yeah. So, so we have to, our responsibility is to, is to see the problem, to understand and to, and to, uh, to address this problem and to, to give answers. Uh, the same for the industry. Huh? Your, your country, uh, Exactly as my country has made a choice uh, 20 or 30 years to, to focus the economy on the services yeah. and to abandon a part of the, the industry. The same in France. Yeah. It was a mistake. Uh, Germany, uh, Sweden, uh, Italy does not do the same. Huh? Yeah. And they are more stronger today. Huh? Yeah. Great. Okay, I'm going to open it to the floor. Um, I'm going to try and take a, a diversity of questions. Um, if you could say your name very clearly, and if, if you could ask your question, your brief question, uh, very, um, very slowly, that will help the conversation. So I'm going to look for a diversity of questioners. I'm going to go for this gentleman first, and then this gentleman here, and then we'll take those two to begin with. Hello, my name is Jeremy Kaplan. Don't, don't speak too fast, please. <laughs> my name is Jeremy Kaplan. And my question is, with Europe, with the UK out, and you talked about the important role of the UK within Europe, you now have a situation where Germany, which was about 25% of the population and the seats in Parliament, now grows to be over 30%. Do you think there is not a consequence of Germany having an even greater position within the European Union without the balancing factor of a UK alongside it. Great. Let's, should we take the other but question but and then you can... No, I can answer okay, briefly. Yes, it's a reality. It, uh, one of the indirect uh, consequences of the Brexit. But we, can, we can write again the, the history, but, but it's not possible. Huh? So, so, so uh, Germany has, is a key player, the main player. Uh, I will try... Uh, it's the reason why um, I, I engage in, in French politics for the presidential debate to 
uh, increase the influence of my country, uh, but uh, Germany is European, no? and I, I don't know yet who will be the next chancellor, the new chancellor, but in any case, he, he will be European. No? So I'm no, no, no worry on that point. The point is for me to, to be sure that the Franco-German cooperation, which is key, don't forget that it is the, the very first stone of the European project, eh? the reconciliation between France and Germany, um, uh, must be balanced. So this is my point. And this cooperation is, is uh, often say, more and more necessary and less and less sufficient. Uh, so we have to cooperate to all together. But I have no problem with, uh, the, with Germany because we know that Germany is a European country. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, this gentleman here. And say your name and uh, say briefly. So you have just referred to the fact that you're standing for the French presidency. Uh, would you be kind enough to explain what distinguishes you from the other candidates of the moderate right and also distinguishes, distinguishes you uh, versus um, Emmanuel Macron and, yeah. and what the main tenets of your platform are? Please. No, 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 I'm sorry, but I will not do that here. Uh, uh, um, every, every, every candidate and each candidate is respectable. Uh, I, I never campaigned in my life and I've made a lot of campaigns in my region of Savoy where I was elected in the Alps uh, until uh, Brussels and I've been four times a member of the French government but I'd, I never campaigned against and I think that French people have the hope for the first time to be able to vote for, for not against. For somebody and for a project, so we have obviously different experiences. I have, vis-à-vis uh, -vis, uh, the other candidates of my party, I have an experience at the international European level. But uh, we, we see and we we, we, we explain the, 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 the mistakes or the failure of some politics in France, uh, the state authority, migration, uh, uh, security, but. I will stop here because I, I'm not here to campaign. And there is a tradition in France which is important for me. It is not campaign or not critique its country abroad. Okay, I will do that. I'm going to take two more from the audience. I'm going to go online. I'm going to take this lady here. And I know this gentleman has had his um, hand up over here. Thank you. Um, hello. My name is Liliana Pop. I'm a, a fellow here. Thank you very much for your remarks, for a book, and for being here. Um, my question is, um, how would you describe the role played by the uh, Central and Eastern European states in this uh, Brexit uh, Sorry, but I did, I did not listen to you. I did not, yeah. How, how would you describe the role played by the Eastern European states in the by, Brexit by the negotiations? What? The Eastern European Eastern? countries, Hungary, Hungary, Poland. During the negotiation? Yes, and, and the Brexit process. And the Brexit process. No, but the, the, the fact is, the fact is that uh, the 27 member states had been united, but this unity is not given by chance. Was not given by chance. Uh, uh, I just let, let me just precise this point. Um, we have decided to work in a total transparency, which is not usual in Brussels. So we have said everything to everybody on every issue at the same time. And to be more precise, uh, we have put in place in Brussels a group of 27 Brexit delegates reporting directly and immediately to the Prime Minister of each country. And my team met this group two times per week. And we have said to this group everything on every issue at the same time to everybody. I did the same with the Parliament, personally, once per week. And in addition, I visit one capital per week, sometimes two capitals per week, meeting the Prime Minister, the President of the, the country, including the Eastern country, uh, the National Parliament, the, 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 the business community, and the, and the trade unions. So we have, in a certain sense, made a co-building of this treaty, of this negotiation, permanently with the Member States. 
and I had no problem with the, the, the Eastern country. Yeah? Brilliant, thank you. And then this gentleman here. Nicholas Henderson. As an antidote to the very dark cloud that I certainly feel as a result of Brexit, and it's continuing unraveling at this very moment, I wonder if you might proverbially share with me the idea of a silver lining. Uh, that is that um, inadvertently, um, uh, ironically and perversely even, the UK has done Europe a big favor. And that big favor is to enable Europe to become uh, even more cohesive and united. First of all, observing the growing chaos that is emerging in this country. Secondly, moving unrestricted by the perversities of British politics and politicians towards uh, a greater union. And lastly, to celebrate the fact that sooner or later, eventually, somebody other than Vladimir Putin may be pleased about what's happened when we have to rejoin in one way or another. Uh, uh, I, I tried to follow the British politics for a long time. It was always very interesting. Huh? Uh, and there is a a common point between uh, what happened in this country and what happened in my country, that there is a, a, a very unfair uh, uh, tendency to, to say everything going wrong is the fault of Brussels. Huh? Uh, I, I saw this tendency in the UK for a long time, in my country too. Even when the British minister, the French minister, were in Brussels to decide. It's always uh, the fault uh, to Europe and to Brussels. Um, this tendency, this, this, uh, this manner to, 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 to critique Brussels ev every day, uh, I think uh, has no longer a reason to be in the UK. Huh? You cannot accept, and we will not accept, that now the, the UK government and the UK politicians say this is the photo of Brussels. Huh? You are out. Uh, and even in my country, I hope that uh, we, will, we will be more uh, uh, objective in our critique. Uh, come back to what happened what I, I see in London, or saw in London for the last two years, two, two, two days. Uh, if we try to be objective, uh, this situation of shortage is linked to several reasons, huh? in my view. Uh, number one, uh, uh, the consequences of the COVID crisis. Number two, the, the price of energy, and it is not only a British problem. Number three, the shortage of uh, raw materials. It is not only a sh British problem. I try to be objective. And, and fourth, uh, objectively, it is linked to the end of the freedom of movement and to the new control of the borders. These two reasons are linked to the Brexit, direct consequences of Brexit. But uh, uh, for the rest, I don't want to comment what could happen in your country. Uh, and I will, I will be al always there to, to say uh, these are or these are not the consequences of the Brexit. The, the fact that your country decide to leave the single market uh, has direct consequences because you have decided to end the freedom of movement between Europeans. Huh? And do you think, um, another Part of the question: Do you think that Brexit has made the EU more cohesive, more united? I think so. I think so, and I simply hope that the unity we have built during this negotiation, four years, and I answer to you, Madame, to, to tell you that this unity is not given by chance. We have built every day. I, I have hope publicly that this unity built during a negative negotiation. The Brexit is a negative negotiation. The Brexit is a divorce. I have no personal experience in divorce, but uh, many friends of mine have experienced that divorce is always negative. 
uh, uh, this negotiation was a negative negotiation. I hope that this unity, we have proved this unity during this negative negotiation, can be used uh, in more positive negotiation as we did with the recovery fund for the break for the, the COVID, and we are doing now building a new strategy for industry and so on. I hope so, and I think so. Great, thank you. And now a question from online, Robin Stafford. Um, what changes or developments might now happen in the EU, which perhaps could never have happened if the UK was still a member? Hmm. It's a theoretical question. Huh? <laughs> it's difficult to say. Even for, for the recovery plan, uh, I, I'm told sometimes, you know, uh, this recovery plan, uh, 7.500 billions uh, yeah. for the very first time. We have borrow to invest together for the very first time. Even at that point, I'm not sure that the UK uh, f facing the crisis of the COVID uh, would not, not be take part of this, uh, this, this plan. But uh, perhaps um, one point which is uh, in, in, the, in the current situation of crisis uh, between the uh, US, uh, UK and France uh, linked to the, uh, the, the, the break of the contrail of the submarines in Australia. Uh, perhaps uh, in the defense matters, uh, it could be easier to build now, uh, perhaps. I'm not sure, perhaps it could be better, easier to build now new steps for cooperation in defence matter. Great. Then the final question which comes from Andrew Campling online, is there sufficient focus on global competitiveness within the European Commission? Is, is there sufficient? Um, focus on global com economic competitiveness um, within the European Commission. Uh, there is never enough effort huh, in that field because uh, we are in a global world uh, facing uh, aggressivity and uh, competitiveness and, and uh, um, of, of, of very large countries like China, United States, India, Russia. So uh, we, we, we must never be uh, uh, happy at the level of, uh, of uh, effort. But now I see um, thanks to this recovery plan, uh, uh, huge and uh, um, 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 effort and, and financing for the new sector of competitiveness. And to be frank, the competitiveness is not only um, the, the goal of the, of the Commission. No? Mm. It is also uh, the responsibility of each member state. For instance, my, my country has a uh, too large and too, too big debt a too big deficit, not the case of some other like Germany, and uh, the lack of competitiveness in France is not the, the fault of Brussels, huh? mm. it's the fault of the, the French governments and the, the, of my country. Huh? So uh, the competitiveness is linked to the common effort for the single market of the same rules to invest in key sectors of the, the new sector of, of uh, of uh, climate change and, uh, and industry, but uh, part, of the, uh, part of the answer to the, the lack of competitiveness depends on the national authority. There's so much more we could discuss, and it's been a fascinating discussion. Um, I'm, I'm afraid we have to wrap up, because um, we're out of time, it was a quick hour, but Michelle, thank you. You, you, can, you can prolong this fascinating discussion. Perhaps the more fascinating is to... to, to Break the rules. Uh, Read the book. <laughs> <laughs> and email Michelle. Michelle, thank you once again for joining us today. And, and, and thank you all for joining us both in the room um, and online. Um, signed copies of uh, Michelle's book, My Secret Brexit Diary, will be available for sale in the foyer now. Um, if you're watching online, you can still get hold of a copy direct from our bookseller partner, Foils. Um, there'll be a link somewhere near to the, the live stream. Um, if you're not already subscribed to our YouTube channel, click on the bell right now to receive notifications of upcoming live streams and replays. Uh, and make sure to join the mailing list um, for all the latest events news as well as updates from the Regenerative Futures and Future of Work programmes um, that we'll be touching on in discussions um, in the coming weeks. 
but um, that just leaves me to but say... Let me, let me just add one, one point, Anthony. Yes. Th thank you, first of all, thank you very much to you Pleasure. and to your team for your warm welcome. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your attention and your presence. Uh, this book, I wrote it um, every day during four years, huh? every day. Uh, short chapter, which is often late in the night. Uh, um, I, I tell the truth of the moment I, I, I live, and uh, I did not change the substance. I just tried to resume because it was too long at the end. I, I got at the end uh, 1,700 pages, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I tried to resume, but I did not change the, the content of what I wrote at the real time. So, so and I add, you, you will see perhaps it more, more or less interesting for the for British people or French and so on, but I write uh, some personal notes uh, linked to my previous life and previous uh, responsibility. I think it could be interesting to know my, myself better, but also to know the details of these negotiations. Huh? And I tell the truth every day. Huh? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.